0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus. And if you've been following along um, this podcast, you know that I am pretty gung-ho about Pakistani startups. I think there's a big shift in attitudes um, in younger generations who've gone from wanting to work at multinationals to wanting to be entrepreneurs or working at startups. Um, and so today I figured... Uh, We talk about the state of the Pakistani startup ecosystem. Um, There's a fantastic new report out, um, Pakistan Startup Ecosystem Report 2021, published by Invest to Innovate. Um, It is the most detailed assessment of the state of the ecosystem itself, funding, what sort of funding rounds, um, some policy recommendations, issues, etc. So the description for that report uh, is in the link below. I would recommend that after you're done listening to it, you go in and jump into the details as well. Uh, But we're going to talk about this report with one of the authors of the report, Ambarine Baig. She's head of insights at Invest2Innovate and recently spent many long uh, weeks and months compiling all the data and the assessments uh, of the report itself. So we figured we'd talk to Ambarine about what are some of the key trends and and, and, uh, uh, contents of this report. So Ambarine uh, welcome to Pakistan, Pakistanomi.
1: Thank you, Zaire, for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you. I think you're the third eye-to-eye person uh, to be on the podcast, and, and, and that's you a know, testament to the fantastic stuff all of you guys are doing um, at Invest2Innovate, Kalsum, Mavish, the rest of the team. Um, and again, congratulations on getting this report out there. Um, it's, it's sort of exciting always to see the trends and the data you put out and the transparency you bring to the ecosystem. Um, so again, kudos to you and your team and keep up the good work. And I want to start with sort of you giving us an overview of what some of the key trends are. Obviously, the headline number was very exciting that Pakistani startups raised over half a billion dollars. Um, from 2015 to 21, um, that also masks the fact that over the last two years, we've seen exponential growth and just this unlock um, in terms of access to funding and excitement around Pakistan and its entrepreneurial potential. So help the listeners understand um, what the state of the ecosystem is, what are some of the key trends that perhaps as you were digging through the data and compiling this report excited you the most?
1: Of course. So again, thank you so much, Azair, for um, having me. It's um, wonderful to kind of like talk about the report, not only but also kind of the you know all of the stuff that goes behind uh, putting all of the analysis together. And I feel like that's where we've been able to kind of pick out on the more kind of you know deeper details uh, or insights of you know especially the interviews that we have conducted so far or like you know for the report before publishing. Um, So I feel like those were some of the most insightful bits um, in addition to the survey. So um, first of all, I am Green really Big, and I've been working with uh, Invest to Innovate for the past uh, three years, um, roughly a little bit over three years. Um, essentially, I have been a research practitioner for the past um, roughly five years. Um, and, you know, sort of my, I started out mostly with education psychology research as a grad school, uh, in, in my grad school. Um, but mostly kind of went on to work on, you know, youth entrepreneurship projects with uh, Um, a couple of different organizations back in Pakistan, uh, here in Pakistan. And um, that was really kind of my first brush with the startup ecosystem in Pakistan, which was more in the context of youth entrepreneurship, as I said. Um, And obviously, things were way more nascent. This was like three years ago. Um, So even then, like, you know, it was pretty like things were pretty nascent in terms of, you know, the, the amounts that were being raised or kind of ideas that were coming forward and things like that or even like the market readiness at that point um but it wasn't just the startup ecosystem that kind of fascinated me but it's um, interaction with the research and data so kind of the intersection that uh IDI insights currently is working um at i think that that's what i find the most interesting um and not only applied to the context of the wider ecosystem in terms of understanding Um, you know what this growth means for the larger wider economy but then also kind of understanding how the players um, are being influenced within the ecosystem whether that is your entrepreneurship support organizations or um, us as researchers or you know the uh, policy regime or um, investors founders and all of these different players so it's not just interesting because of that but also other work, for instance, with Ida Insights that we do with our portfolio companies on the fund side, which is um, Ida Ventures, that's also one of the most interesting um, aspects of our work, which we mostly obviously never, almost never talk about, and it's also not something that we publish, obviously, because it's kind of, you know, uh, confidential information and data and everything, but it's super exciting because it's a very new area, and at the same time, it has so much potential uh, when you think about just, like, understanding Um, and developing a really effective data strategy for these companies that are out there. Um, Specifically for us, um, that means, you know, portfolio companies that we sporadically work with on data initiatives or research initiatives and such. Um, So those are some of the areas that I personally feel super interested in. And, um, and obviously, I feel like organizations are kind of, you know, made up of human beings, and we kind of bring uh, something of our own to all the work that we do. And so, uh, even in the work that we do at IDI Insights, you know, through Kulsoom and uh, through me, Mevish, whether that's you know whoever on the team, Shafra, Emma, um, it's always kind of you know, the purpose. Underlying purpose is always to kind of focus on the data asymmetry um, that we typically talk about in a lot of on a lot of diff- different platforms as well, which is to kind of you know understand that not everyone has equitable access to um, data, and that kind of has a huge impact on the outcomes. Uh, whether that's for founders or investors, um, angel investors, international VCs, local VCs, um, policy pretty much everyone, or even entrepreneurship support organizations. So that's one of the biggest goals of IRI Insights work, irai's work, and then obviously, you know, me as a person and individually, I feel like that's also something that, you know, kind of, I find super interesting. Um, So with that, like, you know, I'll give you a couple of things that I personally found interesting um, that are findings from the report and that are primarily challenges from the report that we have discussed, obviously, in great detail in the report as well. Um, And so, you know, one of the biggest things, obviously, every time that we talk about the stuff um, that comes up is the total, um, you know, kind of amount that that has been raised in investment so far. And uh, that's obviously one, and it's never to say that that's the sole metric for uh, gauging the growth of the ecosystem because that would be reductive. But it is one of the very important kind of metrics for us to actually gauge where we're at and where we're you know headed at uh, headed towards. Um, So I feel like that's why it's super important. And right now, when you look at the amount that has been raised in funding by um, you know startups in Pakistan, I think the numbers stand somewhere at above. I think a little over uh, $700 dollars from 2015 to 2022 year till date, and then um, that is I think roughly kind of making up uh, 270 or 71 um, deals. So that's the total universe or or kind of you know quantum of deals that have happened uh, through Pakistani startups so far. And as you can see, that's you know a huge number. And interestingly, a lot of that investment has actually happened over. Most of 2021, uh, a little bit of 2020, and then a lot of it is obviously you know it continues to happen in 2022 as opposed to what we were kind of you know thinking. A lot of the experts out in the market were thinking you know activity will slow down in a brief, in which we haven't really seen that much. Um, <clears throat> so that's one of the interesting aspects. And then, um, and so you know when we look at the uh, growth in terms of investments over the years, uh, and specifically zoom in on 2021, um, we see that. Um, 2021 accounted for a total amount of $352 million um, raised in investment by Pakistani startups. And then um, that is across a total of 83 deals, which is actually two third of what was raised from uh, the total amount that was raised from 2015 to 2021. So that alone kind of shows you know, how much um, the ecosystem has grown in terms of the amount of capital that it, it has attracted not only from local investors, but also from uh, you know, international investors, specifically VCs, and especially from countries such as the U.S., which has been kind of the newer trend that we have been seeing over the past couple of years. So that's one of the things. And then, um, you know, kind of the predictions also related to the collective market gap of uh, the startup ecosystem in Pakistan. Um, Those predictions by experts have also been, in Pakistan have also been super, um, you know, optimistic. Um, You know, some have actually said that um, right now, it stands at you know, the market gap uh, for all of startups in Pakistan stands between uh, 1.5 to $2 billion. And it's actually kind of, you know, set to uh, potentially surpass uh, $6 billion in the next four to five years, which is, I mean, we can actually see that we're kind of headed there, um, especially when you look at the more recent round that, uh, rounds that have been raised um, in the country. So we also see that, you know, the, the, Average ticket sizes have been increasing a lot over the past few years, specifically in 2021 we saw a big jump. Um, And so more more money um, obviously will be coming in in this year as well as we saw Bazaar's deals with the deal which was uh, $70 million uh, Series B round. Um, Just the fact that Series B rounds in and of of themselves have actually not been that common in Pakistan and now we're seeing more and more of them. Uh, I think now we have a total of like five Series B deals um, and two of them were in 2021 and I think one of them was in 2022 this uh, bizarre thing that I was referring to so that alone is also a you know really good sign um and also the fact that you know investors like kleiner perkins um, Dragonier, um you know a bunch of others uh, kind of you know really prominent investors specifically from the us have actually entered the market and that's really a good sign um And uh, we have also kind of been seeing that, you know, executives from, um, you know, uh, unicorns and decacorns have actually been investing in startups in Pakistan. And that's, again, a really kind of healthy sign of investor interest from abroad. And obviously that investor interest is coming from a place of, um, you know, at least a place of understanding of the market, uh, which when we have spoken to investors in the past, both local and international and specifically international, um, it seems to be rooted in the idea that Pakistan um, seems very familiar to a lot of investors who are coming from other similar markets uh, with, you know, kind of comparable uh, macroeconomic indicators and such. So that's one of, the, uh, one of the things that is kind of, you know, helping the Pakistani startup ecosystem out. Uh, but then there's also this huge aspect of the fact that investors, when they have started to speak to um, you know startup founders in Pakistan over the past year or so especially especially ever since the pandemic um, through you know kind of online channels and such um, they were quite impressed that's literally what we have heard that you know there was a lot of apprehension about um, what they were going to deal with or like you know, what kind of founder quality would be there and things like that but you know we have heard from a lot of really good VCs that um, that kind of you know, apprehension actually completely went away once they actually got into conversations with Pakistani founders. So the quality of human capital, specifically of founders, and of the, uh, the quality of startup ideas and such has also significantly improved. Uh, and I say that because we conducted the 2019, I was around, I was actually the one kind of, you know, leading the 2019 study as well. And so we, all of the interviews that we conducted back then versus right now, we see a huge kind of shift in Um, you know, narrative, not only from international VCs, but also from local VCs and local players, where the conversation has become much more constructive and much more kind of focused on, you know, okay, so like, you know, we're here, but what do we do to actually move forward in a much more efficient manner and everything? So the conversation itself has changed a lot. Um, Whereas, you know, back in 2019, a lot of the interviews would start out with, um, you know, what the key regulatory challenges were, which were one of the biggest uh, hurdle to a lot of the players out there. That's one of the, <clears throat> I feel like one of the most interesting um, things that I've noticed. And then, um, but there's also obviously this other aspect where, you know, we did hear from a lot of investors that high valuations that we're seeing currently in the market are not really perhaps a good sign and that um, in and of itself, there there isn't anything wrong with valuing a company high, but at the same time, it it, it should be something that is um, you know, that they that, that founders and investors involved in all of those are actually able to solidify to, um, you know, kind of like backed by evidence essentially and is actually rooted in reality. So that's one of the things that, you know, most of the investors and founders, even a lot of the founders kept pointing out that um, it's really important right now for us to kind of, you know, keep ourselves in check as founders and make sure that we're we're kind of, you know, valuing our companies in a way that it's, that we're actually able to stand, stand by it in the future and we're actually able to deliver Um, on on it in the future so that, um, you know, the future of investments that are coming into Pakistan are actually going to depend and rely on how these companies, early companies who are raising a lot of money, perform um, in the future, which obviously, in part, depends on what kind of, uh, in what way these companies are valued right now. Um, So that's obviously one of the areas that, you know, investors specifically said that they are a little bit wary about, and uh, even founders pointed out that that might not be, you know, the best,
0: Kind of you know hand, handle uh, right now, if you will. I, I want. Um, the, sorry to interrupt here. One of the things that I, perhaps I want to jump a bit deeper into before going into sort of the valuations and sort of some of the challenges with that. I have a couple of questions with that as well. But sort of on the 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 fact that the pandemic mm-hmm. is a great accelerator and a great equalizer, right? In the sense that all of a sudden people who would have thought thirteen times about coming to Pakistan were not doing that. They were on Zoom and that unlocked mm-hmm. Pakistan's ability to, you know, and, and Pakistani entrepreneurs' ability to show that they're awesome and they're capable and they can do business wow. the way other peers do around the world. And obviously that sort of cat- catalyzed the whole uh, uh, you <clears throat> know, crazy amount of investment. One of the things when I was looking at your report that stood out to me was how uh, much interest e-commerce um, has, has been generating right mm-hmm. and I, I just want to get your sense about like what is it or what was it or some key factors that sort of drove that excitement around e-commerce obviously from a I'm a policy wonk and I look at e-commerce and digital payments as sort of the great opportunity through which we can document our economy and documentation, the way traditionally seen by FBR and others, is I think uh, the idiotic way um, in this modern economy to you know get rid of the grey economy. In fact, digitization is the right path forward, and so e-commerce does that, right? Um, so for me, it's exciting from that lens. But just want to get your sense because you look you've looked at the ecosystem in such depth. Like, what was it that sort of led to this shift in saying, you know, Pakistani e-commerce mm-hmm. is the hottest commodity on the market?
1: So, I mean, from I'll kind of like st- take a step back. Um, and I feel like when I look at the different sectors or like, you know, as a practitioner from our conversations with people, but then also like looking at the data that we tra- uh, track through our deep flow tracker, um, i feel like one of the biggest things that we've also noticed over the years is that um it's not just that e-commerce gets a lot of attention uh in terms of investments uh and has been getting a lot of attention over the years in terms of investments but it's also that the pipeline of e-commerce startups is actually pretty wide com- in comparison to any other sector in pakistan um and i feel like there's also an intersection of different sectors um where you know it's also kind of like boils down to the taxonomy of things as well where you know that's where the the idea of like bifurcating art or like not even bifurcating it's more of like disaggregating the data over time to like make it even more detailed so that we can see all of those nuances that we usually kind of you know that usually slip through crack the tracks um is something that we've also learned over the years and that's why we have started to kind of like you know like disaggregate our data sector-wise data more and more as we move forward to say sector one sector two for each of the startups that we track data for right so when you look at it like that, a lot of the e-commerce companies that we zoom into, and this is not obviously in the report, it's just, you know, sh- something that I would love to share with you is that a lot of the times when you go into these e-commerce companies and look at what they are, you actually see a a, a trend where there is another, like, you know, subsector um, that they're working in, but they're also an e-commerce business, right? So there's that. And then there's also the fact that the, the pipeline of e-commerce companies in Pakistan is really, really wide. There are a ton of e-commerce companies versus when you look at fintech you don't really have that many fintech companies but then with fintech the interesting thing is that that we've been noticing over the years is that it it's been slowly and gradually on the on the rise in terms of the average ticket sizes so when you look at the total amounts raised by e-commerce um sector startups and then fintech for instance i'll give you a, a comparison Um, And this is for um, data from 2015 to 2022 um, by TD, right? So when you look at the two sectors, e-commerce has actually raised $444 um, million so far. And then fintech has raised $116.9 million. So that's almost, e-commerce has actually raised almost thrice as much as fintech. But when you look at 2021 specifically, and when you look at the average ticket sizes, what we have been noticing is that over the years, the gap between average ticket sizes of fintech and e-commerce has actually been bridging. So even if you have fewer fintech deals happening right now, you see that they're raising much more than they were before in in comparison to their own ticket sizes, but at the same time in comparison to e-commerce as well. So that's also something that's super interesting that we have been noticing as a trend. Um, That said, I feel like fintech is interesting because it obviously has, it intersects almost all of the sectors. Um, And you might have been, you know, kind of noticing more recently as well is that there are a lot of companies that have been functioning in the ecosystem in other sectors, whether that's agri-tech, whether that's, you know, groceries, uh, whether that's mobility, have actually started to go into fintech as well. So I feel like that's also another interesting aspect of it. And I feel like from that perspective, then it makes fintech even more attractive than e-commerce, but obviously right now we haven't, the dynamics between e-commerce and fintech has not really flipped completely, uh, but I'm just saying that fintech is kind of like catching up slowly and gradually.
0: And on the um, fintech side, um, really quickly, um, again, this is not in the report, but since I have you, I'll sort of, you know, bounce off ideas off of you. Um, is this sort of shift where agri-tech, other startups are beginning to go into fintech, I see a couple of issues with that, right? One is um, these businesses are still fairly young. They're diversifying into new sectors that perhaps they should be focusing on their core competency. Um, so is that the right approach? And that's a question to you and your thoughts on it would be awesome. But two, also from the sense that, you know, is that is that shift also just happening because investors are like, hey, um this is what we're willing to fund and entrepreneurs are like you know what we need to pivot into this because that's where the pool of money is because we've seen fintech sort of like grow during the pandemic in particular all over the world Mm. southeast asia latin america brazil etc it's just been the hardest thing in 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 the startup sector around the world so how much of the shift that you're talking about is just there because you know it's easier to get the eyeballs of and the attention of the investors and perhaps Do you think it would be better off if founders were focusing on their core competencies versus being too quick to diversify into sectors that perhaps they shouldn't?
1: So that's that's a really interesting question, but I feel like the thing is that when you specifically look at, you know, some of the startups that have kind of like, you know, diversified and like, you know, gone into fintech, um, they all kind of work in their own specific sectors uh, which have different fintech related needs, right? So for instance, if a company is working in agri-tech and they go into fintech, that does not necessarily mean that they've gone into payments or whatever. And so a lot of them have kind of like gone into microloans or for like farmers. Some of them have gone into like, um, I don't know, like, you know, uh, additional payments. Some of them have gone into um, digital ledgers or something, which I mean, not stri- strictly fintech or whatever, but at the same time is obviously a subsector of fintech. Um, so the thing is that it's also kind of you know the the fact that everybody is kind of working in their own particular sector and so it kind of almost works as a complementary aspect that they're adding to their um, you know their existing startup offering uh, instead of completely pivoting, uh, which I don't really see if there is anything like wrong with that necessarily. Um, and what I can also kind of say from from like you know observing a lot of these investments that have more recently happened is that, there's obviously appetite on part of the investors, right? They've obviously, and obviously one of the biggest things that investors have shared with us in terms of, you know, their their comfort with a certain deal is that if they've seen it happen somewhere else, if they've seen it happen and done in a similar ecosystem, that kind of helps a lot with their apprehensions, right? Going into a certain deal. And then obviously if there are people on a certain deal that they really trust and that they think that, you know, are really... Have really deep insights on the on the you know kind of market in question, which in this case is obviously Pakistan. Um, that also kind of increases their comfort level in investing in those deals. So I feel like it's a combination of both. And then the third thing, obviously, is what you said, which is you know kind of the fear of missing out, uh, which works both on the part of uh, investors and and then founders as well. Um, so I feel like maybe in some cases some founders are just doing it for the heck of it, but then others actually know what they're doing. And kind of you know moving towards um a more kind of like holistic solution in their own subsectors that they're working in in a more mindful and a more kind of you know intentional manner so i i mean it's still to be seen i can't really be sure this is just like my own personal opinion but i feel like we will find out over the coming years but i don't personally see anything like wrong with it because i feel like if anything it kind of helps Um, you know, make those those particular subsectors even more help strengthen those subsectors even more. Right. And then that that kind of also ties in with the regulatory aspects of it is gay, you know, if unless somebody does it, unless somebody goes out there and does an agri tech plus fintech play, we're not going to know what the regulatory challenges are going to be for it. So I feel like we need to see those plays happen as well so that the regulatory environment also kind of, you know, moves along it becomes much more sophisticated as the, you know, ecosystem is becoming in terms of the subsectors.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that the sort of, you know, why diversify and complement the things. I, I think that's that, again, is very important. And from my sort of outside in perspective, it's actually also an indictment of Pakistan's traditional financial ecosystem because it sucks and it doesn't meet the needs oh God, of yeah. businesses. And whether it's farmers, whether it's merchants, whether it's individuals. Um, and so, whether it's e-commerce or things like AgriTech or health tech or whatever, um, at the end of the day, if the customer does not have the ability to pay for these services or bridge their working capital needs or keep their accounting practices in check, et cetera, there's no credit history, all of those things, um, the exactly. startup's growth itself is going to be stagnating, right? Because payments, ultimately is the core. And if there is no solution, then perhaps it's best for the entrepreneur to solve for that while they're solving the problems for their core customer base because the customer needs to pay. And I think that's very interesting and exciting because it is the bottom-up disruption of Pakistan's financial ecosystem where banks have gotten fat off of you know, lending money to the sovereign, um, they're not going to do that, somebody has to. And it, it's great that startups are, entrepreneurs are realizing that perhaps they need to intersect with that. Um, and yes, there will be some risks and we may ha- we, we need to learn more about what's going on. But to me, it's also exciting in that sense, because again, as I said um, earlier, the the, e- the digitization of commerce in Pakistan is such a missed opportunity. And I think it's great that the the ecosystem is raising a lot of money on fintech and and e-commerce so that's really exciting and Also,
1: I feel like like you said i feel like it's also that e-commerce is also at, ser- at a certain point i feel like kind of halted or like hampered by the fact that you have such an underdeveloped fintech sector uh specifically when it comes to like um just like you said like you know customer data and all of those things but then also the fact that we don't even have like a good um you know like lending mechanism or even like loan opportunities for a lot of the people who are like you know for instance millennials who make up a huge chunk of our population who are nothing like our parents right like we are not the kind of people who want to be you know kind of sitting around um you know 30 years of their life kind of you know saving up and then buying a house instead we're kind of you know we come from a place where we're like oh let's buy it like you know loan money buy it and then we can pay it back. And I feel like that's such a huge chunk of our population, which is like you know kind of middle class um s e s and then uh the needs of those people are not being addressed, so like you know you don't have like there's so much more like you know asset management to you know there's a bunch of different aspects of fintech that are really not being addressed, and even like something like insurance right you don't have like the kind of insurance plans that are out there um and then on top of that, the kind of like, you know, the, the, the way that they're being administering, uh, administered, um, you know, the kind of tools that are being used to administer those, it's just like, it's very, very archaic, right? So I completely agree, like the banks have in Pakistan or at, like, you know, anywhere in the world, I feel like do not really have an incentive to kind of, you know, go in and um, be at the forefront of like digitizing fintech and things like that or like finance um, in and of itself. But like, you know, we, I feel like in Pakistan, at least we have... Kind of, you know, startups coming to um, the for, uh, forefront where, you know, we're seeing that they're, they're kind of, you know, more in tune with the needs of the customers and the growing kind of, you know, subset of customers, which is the young um, people out there who have completely different needs from what, what our parents' generation had. So I feel like our, personally, I feel much more hopeful with like the startups, fintech startups that are out there, as opposed to any of the bigger kind of, you know, uh, financial institutions.
0: Yeah, I think we're definitely in agreement there. One of the things um, I, I, that stood out to me in the report and you have some recommendations for it and I would love to for you to bring them to the table as well is that local angel participation has remained low um, and that they're not perhaps, and it, it struck out to me because you look at other markets like Indonesia, India, Nigeria, Brazil, um, local angel are sort of the, you know the core foundational block of the ecosystem itself, right? They are the ones who are closest to the action, understand the market the best. Um, They wanna make bets on sort of opportunities they see. um, And then everybody else from the outside sort of comes in at a later stage when when that sort of foundation is built. But in the report, you say it's remained low, it's a concern. Um, Mm -hmm. Why is that the case and how do we change that? Because I think that's a big missing piece of the puzzle here.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. So there are actually two key aspects of why we say that. Local angel participation is actually low, right? So, um, the first piece is actually the the fact that we need more angel investment. Um, but then this, the the other piece uh, that we also kind of talk about in the report is that we need there there's need for more local angel investment at pre-seed stage, which is not something that we have seen so far. And I feel like that is super important for us to actually widen the pipeline of investable. Um, startups at you know seed stage and later stages for other investors, right? So that's what I think we dis- discuss in great detail in the report as well. Is that okay, ideally a lot of the times the you know VC investors typically come in at seed stage, and so the pre-seed stage is uh, an area that typically gets a lot of contribution from uh, angel investor investors, whether that is you know international or local. And so the interesting part that we have noticed in terms of the data that we are looking at is that. Um, international angel investment has actually in terms of participation, right? So like deal participation, international angel investment has actually gone up um like significantly from you know to 2015 to now, uh, or at least from 2018 to now. Um and when in comparison to that, when you look at local angel participation, that hasn't really changed um that much. I can actually give you the exact figures for that as well. So for instance, we have local angels. Um 10 of them were participating in different rounds um, in 2018. and versus 2021 saw 11 local angel investors participating in different rounds, right. And for international angel participation, we saw five in 2015 and versus 37 in 2021. So that's a you know in comparison to local angels, which is 11 in 2021, Uh, or was 11 in 2021, 37 is actually a pretty big, you know, jump. Um, And not just that, when you look at the, you know, kind of the, um, so going into a little bit more of detail of like how we track this data is that we don't, the amounts that we track for each of the deals that happen, um, obviously we don't know how much each of these investors are investing into that particular deal. Um, which is why we can't really say a lot of the times okay, how much of a particular deal is attributed to uh, the angels that are participating, local versus international, or you know how much is how much of it is attributed to VCs that are participating, local versus international. So a lot of the times we talk in terms of um, deal participation. So that's you know how many of these investors are participating in how many deals in terms of the deal count. Uh, and then the other aspect is that when we talk about the uh, the amount raised. Uh, we talk more about, um, you know, the way that we frame it is that, um, you know, angels, um, Pakistani or local angels have participated in this many deals and the deals that they've participated in, which is, for instance, hypothetically, if it's like, you know, 11 for local Pakistani startups uh, or like local angels, um, how much is that are those 11 deals making up for in terms of dollar their dollar value, right? So that's how we kind of try to quantify it. That's the best we can do right now, um, and so when you look at that, you also notice that the local Pakistani uh, angels uh, are actually participating in much smaller rounds as well, <clears throat> versus when you look at the international angels, they participate in much bigger, um, you know, deals with like much bigger dollar value. So that's also another gap, and so when you zoom into the problem, kind of you know try to, try and understand why we say that it's important for angel participation to increase is because of the fact that we, A, want to increase angel investors' participation at the pre-seed stage specifically, but then also increase their participation across different stages, um, especially to people who are coming, high net worth individuals who are coming out of um, uh, family businesses and such, which is largely money that has not been mobilized in Pakistan right now. I mean, we have like family offices, maybe one or two, Uh, tops and that's it and then we have like angel um, syndicates Uh, we have individual angels and such um, which we are tracking the data for but then like beyond that we like there are there's an abundance of kind of like you know liquidity in the the market that we're not really seeing translate to startup investments which is what we have kind of you know advocated for Uh, and obviously that's where the government can step in in terms of incentivizing uh, startup investments um, through angels, through local angels. And interestingly, when you look at other markets, we have actually spoken to a lot of the international investors who are working in other similar markets and even like bigger markets such as India. And one of the key differences that you see there is that these, these funds, VC funds have actually been able to mobilize money locally, which is not really something that's happening in Pakistan right now. And I feel like that's also something that ties in with the angel investment pillar aspect. And that Uh, eventually kind of goes back to the regulatory issues where, you know, we're seeing that even though this regulatory regime has been much more progressive and much more responsive and much more agile than any that we have seen before, there still are areas that need to be, you know, kind of paid, like, you know, we need to pay attention to them uh, proactively so that we can solve for these issues in the longer run and kind of uh, mobilize local money um, as, as essentially as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, one of the things that perhaps, you know, um, is generally, and this is a political economy problem, right, is twofold. And I think you and your team are doing such an awesome job in the startup side to solve those two problems. One is transparency and data access. Um, it's 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 very difficult. And you putting out your research is an amazing service to the country and to the startup ecosystem writ large um, because it brings transparency, right? And we all can read the report. Uh, we can see the data and we can say, okay, here are some interesting trends and we're talking about them. I think the second one is that we often um, don't look around the corner in terms of obstacles that perhaps aren't issues today, but will be tomorrow and and try solving that. Then you mentioned about the the regulatory challenges and that's a good segue, which was my next question was, you identify some issues, right? And I'll pose this question in a different way. Um, And you're sort of knee deep in in the data and, and the ecosystem itself. Um, and would love your thoughts on this is, what are some obstacles that we perhaps need to advocate um, the government, policymakers, others, et cetera, to get rid of proactively so that not only does Pakistan get to a billion dollars and more in startup funding a year um, in the shortest period of time possible, but sustains it. Like, what would you say, you know, are key factors from a policy side that can accelerate that jump to a billion and more?
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure, for sure, just because we were just talking about this, um, the mobilizing local money, um, because there's just an abundance of wealth in Pakistan. Uh, and what we are seeing right now is like nowhere close to what where it could be, um, because all of that, I feel like right now, I don't know, like, you know, it, it's almost become a joke at this point, but like, I feel like most of it is going into real estate, which needs to change, obviously. And like, you know, people need to kind of put money. You, into- you read
0: my mind. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right, like everybody, almost everyone in the ecosystem has been saying this for so long. Um, big, and obviously, like, you know, the reason why people are investing in real estate, which we can't really hold, hold it kind of, you know, against them is also because it's incentivized, right? There is like, because that's the, the, the core of it for investors. It's all about the money, like, you know, it's all about the kind of ROI of whatever they're doing. And so I feel like in, in that sense, the government can play a really important role in terms of incentivizing it, maybe giving some sort of like tax breaks for investors who are investing in startups. And what we are seeing right now is actually the opposite of that, right? So like we're, we've had, and this is obviously like anecdotes that we have heard from a lot of investors is that, okay, you know, every time you make an investment, um, you know, you get these like calls from like FER or whatever, like, you know, a lot of these like abundance of questions about like, you know, where this money came from. And this is for like really small ticket sizes, right? This is like $500,000 or something, not even like millions, a million marks at Uber or like, you know, a million.
0: Meanwhile, you can have undocumented cash transactions for property without any questions asked. And I I have this saying, I often repeat this to friends is that so long as it's easier and um, there are less barriers to investing in Flutistan, um, you will always struggle to raise investments for Pakistan. And that's the problem. You're alluding to that same problem right now.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, 100% for sure. And so that's literally like stuff that, you know, people, investors, obviously like, you know, unnamed investors are telling us is that the regulator needs to listen to that, right? Like we need to understand, hey, okay, if they're being, if so long as the regulators in Pakistan keep treating, Uh, investors who are putting money into startups like that things are not going to change so let alone the incentivizing uh, aspect right now we're actually creating more barriers for people to actually invest for people who are investing in startups or going into uh, startup investments Um, the other thing is obviously that even when there is appetite on part of people who are coming from like family business background and like you know have a lot of family wealth and things like that or even if it's you know other people who are you know have been executives in in MN, like you know mnc's or like you know a bunch of different companies and have accumulated wealth over the years and are interested in kind of you know going into startup investments for them uh, there there aren't a lot of resources for them to understand what the startup ecosystem is about so there needs to be kind of you know bridging of that which i mean is not necessarily a regulatory issue or anything but just saying that that needs to be done and we talk about that in the report as well so giving them access to Um, quality deal flow uh, and startups that are investable is also super important because um, a lot of these people who are going into startup investments have to learn everything about the startup ecosystem and more. And so I feel like anything that can be done to facilitate that that process and help them understand startup investments and align expectation in terms of what founders expect these days and then what investors, what kind of frame of mind investors going to deals with, I feel like that would be super helpful. Uh, so access to degree flow and all of that. But then from the regulatory perspective, I feel like one of the biggest things is also that we need to be super, just like you said, right? Like we need to kind of be, have more foresight and kind of understand what are the problems of tomorrow and what are those things that we need to kind of like do our homework on today and understand. So for instance, like, you know, one of the emerging sectors in Pakistan is actually digital trucking, right? Or um, what do you call it? Like. Um, uh, yeah, essentially, yeah, digital trucking, I'd say. Um, and or like fleet management and things like that. And and then the interesting thing is that um, I'll actually give you an interesting uh, fact on this as well, um, which is that digital trucking trucking has actually been um, in terms of the total that has been raised by digital trucking startups over the years has actually kind of been inching closer to the uh, top. Uh, sectors that have raised the most amounts in investments, right? So, for instance, there is e-commerce. When you look at the data points from 2015 to 2022, uh, year till date, um, there's e-commerce, there's fintech, there's trucking. Just like I said, um, at number three, and it has raised a total of 30.4 million dollars so far across only across only nine deals. So wow. you have, yeah. So you have a sector that is kind of like, we didn't really see any, like, I don't think any digital trucking companies up until 2019, maybe, if I'm not wrong. And so this is all of, you know, kind of growth or like uh, activity that I've been see- that we have been seeing in this particular sector uh, over the past two years or so. <clears throat> and most of these companies are companies that have been founded, founded in either 2020 or, you know, 2021 as well. Um, So what are we doing Uh, what are our, you know, regulators doing, Um, all of them, FBR, SECP, um, SPP, what are they doing to actually prepare for this sector and to kind of facilitate the sector better uh, so that we're not kind of standing in the way of the growth that it can experience. And so I feel like that's, again, a really interesting area. Uh, FinTech is one of the biggest, like, you know, when you talk about regulations vis-a-vis like different sectors, FinTech again is like one of the biggest things, and I we did a briefing on FinTech last year, um, which actually talks about this in great detail. Is that there is um, the you know barrier to entry in uh, FinTech in Pakistan is actually pretty high. Um, you know whether that is because of the paid-up capital issue or other regulatory challenges that you know startups have faced over the years. Uh, one of the key things that startups have pointed out, and we talk about this <clears throat> in the report as well, is that. Um, you know, because fintech startups have such a high cash burn rate, uh, a lot of the times the wait time that they have to face because uh, like, you know, after applying for certain licenses and such um, is actually almost like a, you know, it's almost like a value of depth for them, right? Like you're burning all of this cash, but you're not really making any money and you're waiting on approvals, uh, which a lot of the times these approvals are not too clear either, right? Like a lot of the time startups don't necessarily... Like the regulators don't necessarily make it super easy for the startups to understand uh, what are some of their compliance needs. So I feel like that clarity in terms of policy and for the policies to be there um, proactively so that, you know, startups don't have to do all of this stuff kind of, you know, in retrospective and kind of, you know, are penalized in in retrospective for things that they didn't even know that they had to do. Um, So I feel like things like that have a huge impact specifically on startups who are working in fintech. Um, and again, you know, those startups are much more, or, or not much more, but like you know, they are super important because of the fact that fintech is such a cross-cutting um, sector and it almost impacts all of the other sectors that we're, you know, we have seen so far. That yeah, I seen. think
0: the, the the last thing a startup wants or needs, right, is is waiting on something uh, from a policy perspective to move forward and and burning cash at the same time. And even trucking, I w- I remember. Um, reading about it from uh, just previous uh, research that one of the issues is that the enforcement around weight loads on trucks is a big problem in Pakistan. Um, and that's actually um, bad for taxpayers because taxpayers are funding road infrastructure and highway infrastructure. And if you put over capacity trucks on that infrastructure, the road sort of buckles, um, and then you have to pay for repairs and, and rehabilitation of that road. So A, it's a direct impact to taxpayers, uh, but B, a uh, trucking startup which is a formal business and is trying to be compliant with the laws of the land just cannot compete when there's for example carrying 30 tons of weight um and another one is carrying 50. they just won't be competitive right because the cost structure is going to be different i'm just making these 50 ton numbers up so people don't hold me to that oh you got that number wrong just hypothetically so i think enforcement you said secp and state bank but yes it's also national highway authority um uh problem yep. um that needs to impact for trucking in that mm-hmm. particular instance right so i think there are intersections with different regulators and ministries wow. um at the provincial and the state level that perhaps we need to exactly. uh, proactively address as well yep. um Amreen, this, yeah go ahead
1: yeah i was just gonna say that you know just like you said nha uh there's also like other in case of other startups in other sectors um for instance now actually plays a really important role right like how. That sector can actually uh, reach kind of its optimal potential. And I feel like that won't really happen just like you said, okay, you know, unless there's like really kind of, you know, uh, rigorous interaction between all of these different aspects of regula- the regulatory environment. Uh, and then obviously back to the, uh, the stakeholders, which we're seeing, like, honestly, we're seeing it happen much more often and in a much more organized manner than ever before and it's not just the fact that the regulators are getting in touch with the stakeholders and like you know getting an understanding of their um you know their challenges and everything but it's also that you know they're acting upon those you know recommendations and things like that and there's like follow up and there's like continuous and constant sort of dialogue and that's super important but i feel like for sure there you know there's so much more um and there's also like this aspect where you know you like the regulator, regulators also shouldn't solely rely on uh, practitioners like us or um you know um stake, key stakeholders like startup founders or investors or um you know entrepreneurship support organizations to actually tell them what the challenges are, even though that's like one of the big big parts of the process and it's super important at the same time I feel like they also need to build some sort of a mechanism internally where they have maybe a body of experts who are you know kind of advising them in a much more agile manner and those Kind of, you know, task forces or something where, you know, it's much more, you know, kind of agile in the sense that it has like expert groups almost of like a lot of these like uh, different stakeholder groups, founders, you know, some investors, some international investors, local investors and such, because the thing is, when we talk to these, um, you know, stakeholders, whether that's founders or investors, a lot of the times what happens is that because certain people that we talk to are not really directly dealing with that problem, they, they somehow think that it's not really a challenge. Um, and that's partly something that we talk about in terms of the exit uh, environment and things like that. And, th- and then how does that tie in with repatriation of funds and the clarity or like lack thereof uh, of policies mm-hmm. around that? I feel like that's also super important and kind of ties in with the current conversation that we are having as well.
0: No, I, I fully agree. And I think, again, that that foresight, as you said, is so, so critical, right? Uh, especially for startups and entrepreneurs, because they need to scale at hyper speed, um, And the last thing uh, that they want is policy volatility and uncertainty, uh, where things are not moving at at least half the speed that they're trying to move at, right? From a policy cannot move at that same speed. And we have to be cognizant of that. But at least um, it can try to catch up and 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 be more sort of you know the the thing I often say is that it has to be biased towards innovation and entrepreneurship. That should be the approach of policy making in Pakistan because that's what the economy needs, and that's the only way to have bottom up disruption that we are in such dire need of. And I think that it, it's 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 the need of the hour. But Umreen, this has been a fantastic conversation. Kudos again to you and your team for putting out the report. For those tuning in, the links to the report are down in the description below. Please do check it out. Um, Before I let you go, um, I always ask this of my guests, what are two or three books that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Um, So I actually thought about it um, beforehand and kind of like, you know, because I feel like I'm not really, I won't call myself an avid reader. Um, And that's probably partly because I think, I think I'm, I have like ADHD, I don't know, it's like non-diagnosed, but um, I have a lot of the same symptoms and it's still to be diagnosed. But at the same time, I feel like I I do much more, like I do better with like audiobooks and things like that. So I've been like trying to kind of switch to that. But I'll tell you a couple of the books that I've read that I felt like had a huge impact on almost uh, like they almost served as like a, like what you would call like a paradigm shift of sorts, like changed my perspective on a lot of the things that mattered to me were like, you know, I used to think about it in a certain way. Um, so for instance, one of the books is actually uh, Cartography. You might have read it. Uh, it's by Kamala Shamsi. And uh, I, the reason why I loved that book and it kind of, you know, changed the way that I used to think about like, you know, patriotism and things like that is that I feel like for for our, a lot of people of our age and our generation, uh, millennials, I feel like they have a different sense of um patriotism like their their definition of patriotism is very different from what you would have experienced before or like people would have experienced before so i feel like cartography to me was almost like a like a like the characters were a reflection of our history in terms of west pakistan and east pakistan and our treatment of each other um and i feel like the characters kind of like you know really brilliantly kind of reflected that dynamic of like you know the kind of the history of like rejection and like you know heartbreak and things like that so i i, I absolutely loved it um and then the other the second book um uh, that i really enjoyed and that i actually full disclosure i actually did, was not able to finish it but i still loved it um and only because it was actually super dense was uh, <clears throat> is being pakistani and again this ties in with like identity and like you know your kind of like how you view your country versus like you know your relationship with your country and all of that um and it's by Reza Rumi and I thought it was super super interesting because it kind of I I never knew Sindhi culture and like Sindhi history the way that I did after I read this book because I felt like I mean obviously our textbooks have really taught us nothing (laughs) and there's such like amazing um, really empowering you know feminist um stories, folk stories that we can learn so much from, and it, it's almost like um you know for years and years and years because of co- colonialism, we have kind of been made to like think about our own culture and you know how they say like for Jewish people when they had their kind of you know first interaction with like a different culture it's like there's a term for this, which is almost as if like you kind of undervalue your own culture um especially when the majority culture that you're dealing with in that context has always told you to kind of like you know essentially undervalue your own culture right like in in different ways um so I feel like that was super interesting because it kind of made me understand um the nuances of like human interaction across different races but then also across different nationalities and how that impacts our own identity and how I had to kind of take a step back and kind of understand this whole idea that, you know, feminism and then, and obviously the book is not solely like, you know, it's not about feminism specifically, but like, I'm just saying that I took away certain parts from it that I really thought were, you know, kind of resonated with me uh, in terms of that. I don't know if that made sense, but um, Mm -hmm. that was one of the books. And then the third one is actually Invisible Women, which I have literally just started out reading. Uh, and it's actually a book that talks about how there is a lot of bias in data and science, like data and research, uh, a lot of gender bias in data and research. So, you know, whether that is uh, research and data that's done in medicine, how cars are made, how car seats are made, medicine itself or um, pharmaceuticals, a bunch of different things, just like the disparity in terms of how research is done and how it always um, you know, kind of sees women as invisible. Um, And so I found it super interesting because it kind of intersects two of the most important things in my life, feminism and research. (laughs) Um, So I love that and I feel like everyone should read it because it's interesting because again, kind of, you know, taking it back to the study as well is that a lot of the times when we talk about gender bias and like, you know, gender disparity, uh, people think that we mean gender disparity in the most like obvious sense of the words. Uh, which we don't, there are so many different things that are like very implicit. And um, it's not that, you know, people look at a woman and they're like, or a female founder, they're like, oh, I'm not gonna invest in you because you're a woman. It's more of that there are biases that are so deeply entrenched, um, that we, you know, our systems are made in a way that we kind of penalize women for being women, or like, you know, women for, for giving birth or for taking maternity leave or a bunch of different things, right? Just things that come with our existence as women. I feel like those are, um, you know, some of the things that, you know, kind of tie the study together, but also this book, which kind of, you know, really beautifully explains that whole phenomenon.
0: Thank you for those recommendations. I've read Cartography, Not the Other Two, um, and Raza Rumi is awesome. So great recommendations. I'll add them to my list um, as well, and people should um, add them to theirs as well. Um, But Ambarin, thank you so much again for your time today, for sharing the insights. Um, audience listening in, check out the full report, um, and I'm bringing you and your team kudos to you for all the hard work for bringing us data and transparency that we can look at and, and analyze. Um, and we'll have you soon soon, hopefully um, next time when more details come out about where the Pakistan startup ecosystem is and where it's headed.
1: Thank you, thank you, Zara. I'm so sorry my dog has finally started to work.
0: The dog knows that time's up, so all right, thank you.
1: Thank you, bye-bye.